Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. All right, everybody, let's get back into Dracula, Chapter 5. We almost finished Chapter 5 last time, but I kind of wanted to keep that episode contained to the conversation, the epistolary conversation back and forth between Mina and Lucy. I really do love that character of Lucy. I love the character of Mina, too, frankly. I think that Mina and Lucy are pretty remarkable to be, in some ways, their relationship is the backbone of the whole book. And anyway... Let's have a sip of reed and wine. Mm. I'm drinking some Cabernet Sauvignon. That's real good. It also it is also real cheap. It came out of a cardboard box, but it's real good. So uh, I need a little extra reed and wine because it is less than three weeks to the election. Oh, I'm so ready for this election. I'm so ready to vote. I'm so ready to have the election over with, and I'm ready to have the election decided. So, uh, that said, if you listen to Social Distancing Radio and you have voted by the time you hear this, or at some point after you hear this, send me an email at michaelgwilliams at gmail.com and tell me that you voted feel free to throw in like a picture of your I voted sticker or something like that. You don't have to. It's just fun to celebrate those kinds of things. And uh, if you are one of the first 10 people to email me, then you'll get a very limited edition uh, social distancing radio sticker that I had made because I needed to try out a sticker service and they had a special where you could get 10 proof stickers basically so i'm going to give those away and they're of the social distancing logo which you see now in the podcast app before you that's enough administrivia and promotional stuff don't really need to sell you on the podcast you're listening to the 56th episode i'm pretty sure you're in for the long haul so one more sip of reading wine Mm. Okay. Yeah, let's fire it up. Let's close our work email so it doesn't keep making that sound. Okay. Dr. Seward's diary, kept in phonograph, 25 May. Ebb tide and appetite today. Cannot eat, cannot rest, so diary instead. Since my rebuff of yesterday, I have a sort of empty feeling. Nothing in the world seems of sufficient importance to be worth the doing. 
As I knew that the only cure for this sort of thing was work, I went down amongst the patients. I picked out one who has afforded me a study of much interest. He is so quaint that I am determined to understand him as well as I can. Today I seemed to get nearer than ever before to the heart of his mystery. I questioned him more fully than I had ever done, with a view to making myself master of the facts of his hallucination. In my manner of doing it there was, I now see, something of cruelty. I seemed to wish to keep him on to the point of his madness, a thing which I avoid with the patience as I would the mouth of hell. Mem, under what circumstances would I not avoid the pit of hell? Omnia Romi Vinalia Sunt. Hell has its price. Verb sap. If there be anything behind this instinct, it will be valuable to trace it afterwards accurately, so I'd better commence to do so. Therefore, R. M. Renfield, Etat 59, Sanguine Temperament, Great Physical Strength, Morbidly Excitable, Periods of Gloom Ending in Some Fixed Idea Which I Cannot Make Out. I presume that the Sanguine Temperament itself and the Disturbing Influence End in a Mentally Accomplished Finish. A possibly dangerous man, probably dangerous if unselfish. In selfish men, caution is as secure an armor for their foes as for themselves. What I think of on this point is, when self is the fixed point, the centripetal force is balanced with the centrifugal. When duty, a cause, etc. is the fixed point, the latter force is paramount, and only accident or a series of accidents can balance it. Letter Quincy P. Morris to Honorable Arthur Homewood. 25 May. <clears throat> My dear Art, we've told yarns by the campfire in the prairies, and dressed one another's wounds after trying to land in at the Marquesas, and drunk healths on the shore of Titicaca. There are more yarns to be told, and other wounds to be healed, and another health to be drunk. Won't you let this be at my campfire tomorrow night? I have no hesitation in asking you, as I know a certain lady is engaged to a certain dinner party, and that you are free. There will only be one other, our old pal at the Korea, Jack Seward. He's coming too, and we both want to mingle our weeps over the wine cup, and to drink a health with all our hearts to the happiest man in all the wide world, who has won the noblest heart that God has made and the best worth winning. We promise you a hearty welcome, and a loving greeting, and a health as true as your own right hand. We shall both swear to leave you at home if you drink too deep to a certain pair of eyes. Come. Yours as ever and always, Quincy P. Morris. Telegram from Arthur Homewood to Quincy P. Morris. Count me in every time. I bear messages which will make both your ears tingle. Art. I'm going to step in for a second and just say, one of my favorite things about this novel has always been that the three suitors of Lucy uh, are not enemies of one another, but in fa instead fast friends and become closer friends by virtue of their mutual dedication to her. A, a cheap and lazy story would make these guys into rivals and turn their friendship sour and make it become, you know, another stupid love triangle story. And I guess love quadrangle in this case. And that doesn't happen in this book. And I love that. Like right out of the gate, they're friends still. <clears throat> Sorry, I'll keep going. Chapter 6, Mina Murray's Journal. 24 July, Whitby. 
Lucy met me at the station looking sweeter and lovelier than ever, and we drove up to the house at the Crescent in which they have rooms. This is a lovely place. The little river, the Esk, runs through a deep valley, which broadens out as it comes near the harbor. A great viaduct runs across with high piers, through which the view seems somehow further away than it really is. The valley is beautifully green, and it is so steep that when you are on the high land on either side, you look right across it, unless you are near enough to see down. The houses of the old town, the side away from us, are all red-roofed and seem piled up one over the other, anyhow, like the pictures we see of Nuremberg. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes and which is the scene of part of Marmion, where the girl was built up in the wall. It is a most noble ruin of immense size and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There is a legend that a white lady is seen in one of the windows. Between it and the town there is another church, the parish one, round which is a big graveyard all full of tombstones. This is, to my mind, the nicest spot in Whitby, for it lies right over the town and has a full view of the harbor and all up the bay to where the headland called Kettleness stretches out into the sea. It descends so steeply over the harbor that part of the bank has fallen away, and some of the graves have been destroyed. In one place, part of the stonework of the graves stretches out over the sandy pathway far below. There are walks, with seats beside them through the churchyard, and people go and sit there all day long looking at the beautiful view and enjoying the breeze. I shall come and sit here very often myself and work. Indeed, I am writing now with my book on my knee and listening to the talk of three old men who are sitting beside me. They seem to do nothing all day but sit up here and talk. The harbor lies below me with, on the far side, one long granite wall stretching out into the sea, with a curve outwards at the end of it in the middle of which is a lighthouse. A heavy seawall runs along outside of it. On the near side, the seawall makes an elbow crooked inversely, and its end, too, has a lighthouse. Between the two piers, there is a narrow opening into the harbor, which then suddenly widens. It is nice at high water, but when the tide is out, it shoals away to nothing, and there is merely the stream of the Esk running between banks of sand, with rocks here and there. Outside the harbor on this side there rises for about half a mile a great reef, the sharp edge of which runs straight out from behind the south lighthouse. At the end of it is a buoy with a bell, which swings in bad weather and sends in a mournful sound on the wind. They have a legend here that when a ship is lost, bells are heard out at sea. I must ask the old man about this. He is coming this way. He is a funny old man. He must be awfully old, for his face is all gnarled and twisted like the bark of a tree. He tells me that he is nearly a hundred, and that he was a sailor in the Greenland fishing fleet when Waterloo was fought. He is, I am afraid, a very skeptical person, for when I asked him about the bells at sea and the white lady at the abbey, he said very brusquely, I wouldn't fash myself about them, miss. Them things be all wore out. Mind, I don't say that they never was, but I do say that they wasn't in my time. They be all very well for comers and trippers and the like, but not for a nice young lady like you. Them feet folks from York and Leeds that be always eating cured errands and drinking tea and looking out to buy cheap jet would creep aught. I wonder myself who'd be bothered telling lies to them, even the newspapers which is full of fool talk. I thought he would be a good person to learn interesting things from, so I asked him if he would mind telling me something about the whale fishing in the old days. He was just settling himself to begin when the clock struck six, whereupon he labored to get up and said, I must gang a gee words home now, miss. My granddaughter doesn't like to be kept waiting when the tea is ready, for it takes me time to cramble aboon the grease, for there may be many a em. 
And miss, I like belly timber sairly by the clock. He hobbled away, and I could see him hurrying as well as he could down the steps. The steps are a great feature on the place. They lead from the town up to the church. There are hundreds of them. I do not know how many, and they wind up in a delicate curve. The slope is so gentle that a horse could easily walk up and down them. I think they must originally have had something to do with the abbey. I shall go home too. Lucy went out visiting with her mother, and as they were only on duty calls, I did not go. They will be home by this. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to note a couple of things that I love about this. Um, First of all, I need to look up Marmion. It's never really lodged in my brain. I don't know what that is, and now I want to know. Um, Second, the description of the graveyard at Whitby reminds me a great deal of the necropolis in Glasgow in Scotland, where they're obviously the most uh, valuable real estate in all of Glasgow is given over to the graveyard behind the cathedral in Glasgow. And if you go up in there, there are a ton of pathways and there are benches and people just go up and walk around in the, in the necropolis and you have the best possible views of the city. I have photographs around somewhere, old film camera photographs from when I was in Scotland, you know, 20 plus years ago. And I should dig those up and scan them and post them or something. Anyway, but there are a lot of people who said that during quarantine. Um, but I really love this and I really love her description of the Abbey and I love the old fisherman. Uh, I just, I don't know. There's something great about him. Bram Stoker isn't convinced that we need to be like buried in creep and suspense. He describes a lot of life so that it's contrast can uh, stand it all the more in the story. And I love that. Anyway, talk to you next time where we'll pick back up with Lucy's diary. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. <laughs>